welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you Romain and Emmanuel. And uh, before we start, we uh, usually um, do kind of an interactive type of introduction, um, if that's okay with you. Um, I'll just um, briefly, you know, uh, mention that uh, what we what we are talking about today. Um, and then if that's okay with you, I'll ask you a few questions. So to have this kind of introduction, getting to know you in an interactive way. Um, yeah, so today, uh, Romain and Emmanuel uh, will be talking about the mostly about their work that was recently published on the double slit time diffraction at optical frequencies, um, which is a really interesting experiment and, and study that came out. So um, maybe I'll start with you, Romain, <laughs> since you're the first author. Um, sure. Kind of how did you discover that you want to become a scientist and what was basically, if you if you want to share a little bit with us, what the path was like, what elicited your passion for science, and then how did you become the the scientist that you are today, or you know, and and being a PhD student where you are today. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Um, so I don't. I don't. I mean. I don't know how it goes for like, you know, everyone has their own trajectory, but for me, like, I didn't know I wanted to be a scientist in a day. Um, I think like, like most people, I was good in math in school. <laughs> uh, that's usually where it starts. And, um, you know, as you progress and you start to take more um, specific courses in high school and then, you know, I applied to uni and I thought, okay, what are the best options for me? What am I good at? Where am I more, more likely to succeed? What, and also, what do I enjoy? Um, and that, you know, led me to start studying mathematics and physics. And then as you progress through your studies, you start to learn what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy. And for me, um, you know, first, uh, I realized I really enjoyed physics and then experimental physics. And so that's kind of how I slowly, um, slowly progressed into um, doing a PhD uh, here in London. So <laughs> I don't think it was a it was a one day re revelation, but more of a slow process of thinking. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm comfortable and happy doing this, um, and it's working for me. Um, so so that's kind of how. That's what got me into physics. Um, I don't know if that was <laughs> a good answer, but. <laughs> Yeah, every answer is perfect, you know, that your answer is like your path. So it's it's really wonderful to learn how, you know, different scientists, you know, discover what they want to do and then, um, you know, get to um, be where they are today. And I think it, it's a really interesting, um, you know, it's always interesting to learn about it and today, you were a PhD student, um, and um, and you did your masters in physics from the University of Cambridge, and then your bachelor in physics, the Imperial College London, and um, you you say that 
you're both so you're experimentalist and then you say that you're strong you have a, also a strong theoretical background that's not too common is it though so um, that's really interesting <laughs> no, no yeah you, it's true was it out of you know necessity or was it you know that you kind of were very passionate about both and you want to follow both um well you know it's um i started i started doing mathematics in undergrad um and then i transferred to physics and, and when i first transferred to physics i was doing a lot of vertical courses and i was enjoying them a lot um but as i was progressing uh i realized that you know through internships mostly because um things quite funny but most people who do um labs and experimental work in undergrad in physics kind of hate it because it's often fairly uh, tedious and boring experiments. Um, but um, I did a few research internships and I um, really got to see what was happening in a real research lab, especially in um, so nanophotonics, which is these labs where you study the interaction between light and matter at very small scales. Um, and so I, I kind of discovered that pleasure of like kind of, um, you know, uh, like putting your hands in there and uh, and experimenting so it's kind of a, a diy approach to, to physics um and so uh, that's how i slowly moved towards experimental physics so i started taking experimental projects and then um and then um and then doing um a phd but like a mostly experimental phd so i really went from doing a lot of theory and very little experiment to the to the opposites um which shows that you know you, you're not you're never really set on a precise path um, either during your studies or your career in general. Yeah, I think that's really important to stay flexible like that. Um, so um, yeah, that's that's really um, interesting. That um, you know, I I wonder if either more people that. Um, kind of yes to coming here to share their research here are just more open to different things where if um, people that you know have this really interesting research you know in high impact journals and so on uh, that that are in general more open to um, to different challenges and you know collaborating with different fields so we are still, <laughs> I don't know if it's just a very biased way of, because I feel like a lot of uh, speakers that come here are kind of um, that way. So it's, it's just a really interesting um, thing to learn about our speakers here. Thank you. And Emmanuel, you're um, a Simons Fellow um, at the ALO Group uh, Photonics Initiative. You're at CUNY, New York, and um, but you were also at the Imperial College London as a student, as a master's student, um, and then later on you had won the doctoral prize. You were a doctoral prize fellow at the Imperial College London, and then later on did your PhD at Londra Regno Unito. So, um, if you want to tell us a little bit about your path to become the researcher you are today? Was it like a childhood dream or, you know, what brought us to this point to talk with you here today? Thank you. Thank, thanks for the question. Uh, yeah, for me, 
uh, it kind of emerged as uh, the thing that I liked at the end of my studies. I for <laughs> before the end of high school, I was like I was very much into music. In fact, it turns out and. Uh, uh, eventually, I was in from a small place, and uh, I come from from a small town in in, in Sardinia, Italy. Um, uh, but yeah, eventually, you know, those dreams kind of you put them in a drawer, and um, and then I, I had to. My default option would have been becoming a dentist, like most of my family. But in the end, uh, I, I, that felt like my the rest of my life would have been kind of already scripted, and uh, and that I, I was dreading that very much. Uh, like uh, like as an 18, 18 year old that was trading a lot of things uh, but then I, yeah, I kind of looked at what I enjoyed the most and what I enjoyed the most in school was really physics and in particular electromagnetism and and as it turns out it's not like I was so passionate about math itself I appreciated it as a tool uh, as it turns out I, I liked building things when I was in high school like little like demonstration experiments and all of that and so for me, it was a little bit the other way around. And when I went to uni, I found that what I really enjoyed was theory. Uh, but I still maintain, a, you know, through, throughout my, my career so far, um, I always try to keep a toe on, uh, um, not necessarily on, on the experiment itself, but on, like, um, physical insights. I think one, one risk of, of theoretical physics is to kind of lose, lose contact uh, with physical insights. If we think of um, many of the, if I think of the, you know, most, the, the physicists that I really respect the most, they are the ones that actually manage to convey and to kind of stay in touch with, with the physics behind, beyond, you know, beyond the, be, behind the math. Um, so I, I try to keep that. And, and now, the, 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 as, as, a, as a theorist, it's not easy to, to collaborate with experimentalists sometimes, and it's probably the other way around as well, <laughs> I would imagine, Roman. Uh, like, but uh, it's a, it's a very um, fulfilling um, endeavor because it kind of forces you to, um, for one thing, um, try to see things through a different, uh, from a different eye, from a different view, from a different point of view as well. Uh, there's always, coming from the theory side, there's always all these things that uh, would be great to do and then there's a much smaller set of those that uh, what is realistically doable. Um, and so, in the, in the case of this of this project, particularly that, you know, with uh, through lots of coffee cups and and discussions with Roman and uh, with the with the group of, uh, of Ricardo Sapienza and, and Stefano Vezzoli, we, we you know we came up with a with a couple of projects that uh, um, where we could really find interest both from the theory side and from the experimental side. So that's kind of. When the two manage to meet, that's always very exciting science that, that emerges. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, that's yeah, I, I I totally agree, and that's wonderful. That <laughs> well, first of all, it's only the second time of all the speakers that I heard that somebody is rebelling by studying physics. <laughs> <laughs> we had one speaker before she said a very similar thing. I think her parents wanted her to become a doctor. Too. <laughs> and she said, became a doctor, just a different one. <laughs> that's that's really interesting. And um and a lot of speakers um interestingly also have like a parallel passion for music or still practice or um 
play a lot of music, which is also really interesting. And um, yeah, I, I think in general, we should have more time to freely discuss our ideas and then ideally get funding for, for ideas like that, that we, we come to like emerge out of these situations that are kind of just conversations at dinners or, or something like that. So, yeah, um, it's wonderful that this became reality then. And, um, so thank you for sharing this kind of peek behind the curtains. And yeah, the slides, as I said, are pinned on top for everyone to see. So if you want to now go into the slides and present, um, you know, the research, uh, the stage is yours. Thank you. Okay. Um, so um, essentially this experiment on double slit diffraction in time is kind of part of a research, like a broader research theme, which is uh, controlling frequency or in other words, color um, in time varying media. And uh, this is a collaboration between um, essentially uh, the, the experimental and theory groups um, with of uh, Ricardo Sapienza, who's the, the lead um, principal investigator and, and so Emanuele, who kind of came up with the original idea along with Stefano uh, and John Pendry. Um, and um, yeah, it's a very interesting topic, uh, which essentially stems from trying to control light waves uh, and their color. So if you look at slide two, um, when you go to the fundamental question, what is light? Well, um, a lot of people say uh, light is a particle, it's a photon. Um, and because of that, you can say it's a ray. So it has like a, a very precise trajectory. Um, just like if you throw a ball, you see the ball moving um, to a precise point in space and time, right? Um, and so you have really cool art here by Baroness Abbott, uh, which I believe is um, exhibited uh, in the MIT Museum in, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, now, if you move to slide three, you can see that um, you can also observe um, wave behavior from light. Uh, and that is because uh, wave, light is well known now to be both a particle and a wave. Um, and essentially, what we're trying to look at is how um, waves behave and how we can control them. So if you move on to slide three, uh, one of the main main ways and like uh, main um, main how do you say variable to describe waves that we use in general is phase and phase essentially describes how how your wave oscillates um, so you know you have a wave that's propagating it's uh, this kind of undulation that you see here in red and so um, it's amplitude um, which is how, how high it is so you can think about a wave in water um, can be described by the phase of the wave. And this phase varies through space and time and takes different value depending on if you're a high or a low or somewhere in between. And this is what we're trying to control in general when we try to control light and when we try to, trying to control waves in general is really trying to control that phase here. And so um, you can create structures that control color by interacting with space. And notably, we got really, really good at um, 
controlling phase in space. So if you move on to slide, uh, I think it's slide five. Yeah. Um, you can see this painting of a flower, which is actually not really a painting, but more um, like millions and millions of these very small uh, structures. Um, well, actually 18,000, which is not that much. Um, <laughs> and essentially each of these little pillars that you can see on the bottom right um, will change the phase of light, will interact with different colors in different ways, and will send us a specific color. And that that's what allows us to control, for example, um, the color at each pixel in this painting. Um, so here, what you're seeing essentially is a lot of these very tiny pillars of glass um, being emitted by light. And what you see on the other side is uh, the different colors coming out. So that's the first example. A second example is quite funny. If you move on to slide six, is um, um, in researchers from ETH Zurich, what they did is they printed uh, a very small structure onto chocolate. So you can do that, um, and uh, they, they do it in a lot of um, in, a, in a lot of shops actually. And essentially, you can observe rainbows coming out of chocolate because they have these very small structures that control the phase of light and can separate the different colors in that way. So essentially, um, with modern technology, we're very good at controlling the, the phase of light um, with spatial structures. And um, our research um, really tries and moves on to creating uh, structures in time and thus to control the color from structures in time. And so if you move on to the next slide, you can see that um, essentially the frequency um, so the frequency of a wave describes the color of that wave um, is essentially uh, corresponds to variation of the phase in a certain time, which is the only equation that you'll see today <laughs> on the left. And essentially, yeah, if we if we change phase in time, we can change the color. So what do we do? How do we do it? We we take a material in which a wave is propagating and we change its properties. And by changing its properties, we see a change of the phase of the wave that's propagating inside. And in general, that's what we will be talking about is time-varying media. So it's these media whose properties change in time and that will affect waves propagating inside. So if you look at slide eight, um, you know there's a lot of ways we can control that way. Uh, it doesn't just apply to light, but it applies to all scales. So you can look at uh, water waves, for example. Um, so just, um, you know, on on various scales, you have water waves, sound waves. Um, so what people, for example, are very interested in is metamaterials for shock waves from explosions. So you can imagine some devices that can um, protect you from an explosion um, or any kind of blast. Um, people working in uh, radio waves and communications. So that's actually, uh, I know, a big um, theme of research in uh, Emmanuel's group in New York. Uh, which is RF uh, RF waves, then you can do um, faster and faster processes. So you can look at uh, waves with electrons, but also uh, what we call magnons, which are like kind of waves of magnets, um, like attracting and repulsing each other and propagating in that way. So you've got all sorts of waves. And then you arrive to um, extremely fast waves, which is essentially visible light. And uh, the faster these waves oscillate, and the more difficult it is to control the phase. Uh, and the reason for that is because 
you kind of got this um, principle, this, which means if you want to control something that oscillates at a speed, you need to change your media at the same speed. And our problem is, you know, um, if you look at a water wave, well, you can see the wave moving by eye. But light wave, you would never see oscillate by eye. Um, so you need to be able to kind of like change a medium, so do a time-varying media on these very, very fast scales. Um, and so you can think about like trying to f uh, flick a switch very, very fast. So it's very tricky. And what we use for this, um, what do we use to control light? Well, we use more light. <laughs> um, essentially, if you move on to slide nine, you can see that we use uh, a laser, a laser pulse to change matter. So essentially, uh, what's a laser pulse? Um, if you look on the left, you have this kind of graph where you see this kind of curve going up and down, which is called the Gaussian curve. Um, and so the x-axis is the temporal coordinate, while the y-axis is the intensity of the wave. So essentially what it means is that you have um, your intensity going up and down within a certain amount of time. And we can make these pulses very, very, very short. And uh, essentially we can bring them down to hundreds of femtoseconds. So a femtosecond is a millionth of a billionth of a second. So that's very short. Um, <laughs> and these laser pulses that we're going to use them to shine them on medium. And what's going to happen is um, when you shine light on the medium, um, the, the medium is going to react to that light and kind of change properties. And it's going to change properties within the, the time scale of that pulse. So that means that you can change a material, as you see on the right, within tens of femtoseconds with a very strong amplitude um, just by using these laser pulses. And the material that we use is indium tenoxide. So that's a very popular material um, in solar cells or in screens. Um, it's very interesting because indium tenoxide is conducting, um, but it's transparent. So that's why we use it in our screens so that you can uh, bring the, the electricity across your, your uh, phone screen while you can still see the light coming out of it. So moving on to slide 10, you can see, for example, um, you have this weird graph on the right. And essentially, you kind of see that line, which tells you about which color um, which color the light uh, that's propagating in the medium has. And essentially, if you make the light that's propagating in the medium arrive at the same time that that laser pulse that I talk about, which we call the pump, uh, arrives in the medium. So you have a pump that arrives with a lot of light, changes the material properties. Um, and then what you have uh, the probe, which is the light that we want to modulate, that arrives at the same time. Well, you see that jump here um, in, the, in the graph on the right. So if it arrives precisely at the same time, suddenly the color of the probe will change. Um, and that's kind of like the, the basic building block we're trying to, to have in our experiment is to do these strong changes in color um, by inducing these uh, very fast changes in the material. So to talk a bit more about our experiment, um, well, I think we, I should start by introducing Young's double say experiment, uh, the classic experiment, which, I, which was done um, 200 years ago. So we're talking about very fundamental physics here. Um, 
And it's a very interesting experiment. It's a very important one because it's the experiment that, amongst other things, proved the wave nature of light. So before Young, um, people weren't exactly sure about the nature of light. And a lot of people, including Newton himself, uh, thought that light was um, a particle only. And um, Young was kind of inspired um, by another uh, phenomenon that was well known at the time, which was the beating of sound waves. Um, to do that same experiment with light. So in Young's double slit experiment, if you look on the left, you have light coming out of two slits separate in space. And then as they propagate through these slits, they're kind of um, diffracted, so you can see them um, expanding. You see the, the, the propagation of the light expanding across a, a whole range of angles. And then you see it creates these kind of lines, um, these bright lights and these dark lines, which we call inter interference and which corresponds to the two waves coming out of each slit. So you have a slit on top and a slit at the bottom with waves, each one has a wave coming out. And what these two waves do is they interfere with each other and they can add up or they can cancel each other. And that's why you see this kind of pattern where you see bright lines and dark lines and bright line and dark line uh, going away from the center and like decreasing intensity. So we want to show that we can do the same things, but in time. Um, so by changing colors. So if you look at slide 12, um, so you can see um, if we control the phase in, in, in space, so that's what the two states are doing effectively, is controlling how the phase involves in space. Well, you see that interference pattern coming up on a, on a screen in a distance. Now, if you, if you modulate the phase in time, what we hope to observe is the same interference pattern. But this time, it's not like a spatial distribution that we'll observe, but more of a spectral distribution. So what this means is we'll see all our different colors um, oscillating in a way on, in a single spot. So you can think of um, a bright orange peak and then superpose on it a red peak um, and then a green dot and a blue dot. But the blue dot, because it's further away from the original orange would be much weaker than the, for example, the green dot. So that's kind of what we're trying to do is to do the, exactly the same thing, but seeing these oscillations in the color of a light. Um, so what do we do? If you look at slide 13, um, we're looking at um, our indium tin oxide, which is essentially an ultrafast mirror. So we, um, you can see a little picture on the left here of our um, sample, so you can see is. It's just mounting our setup there, and it's a it's a very thin, a very thin film. Um, so it's only fourteen millimeter thick. So uh, again, for for scale, a nanometer is a billionth of a meter. So we're talking about a very very small uh, medium, and you can see in red is the light we want to modulate that we shine on, and then we can choose to reflect it or not. So that's going to be our um, kind of a slit in time. So if the light is reflected, the slit is open. And if the light is not reflected, the slit is closed. And then this slit, we open it and close it with another laser. So that's what you see on the right. You see uh, these kind of two uh, openings in time by shining a laser. And then if you look at the top, you can see the reflected light that we get. Um, essentially, we can control when these two uh, these two transmitted light, uh, like when, when these two reflections in time happen um, with our setup.
Okay, and then in uh, slide 14, um, you can see, um, so we use um, a measurement apparatus, which is called a spectrometer. Um, and essentially a spectrometer uh, allows you to look um, and measure um, the uh, how, how much intensity you get at which color from light. So it separates all the colors and tells you, well, this color is stronger than the others. And that's what you're seeing here in the graphs at the bottom, you see in slide 14, uh, at the bottom, the x-axis is the frequency, which is the color of light. And then on the left is the counts per second we get on our detector, which is essentially a camera. And so you see these little oscillations that I'm showing here, um, which is essentially the, the side of our oscillation pattern. So you can see these oscillations decreasing um, just as expected um, from what we talked about earlier. So if you compare slide uh, 12 and slide 14, you can see um, the same kind of pattern appearing. And now if you change um, the separation between your two slits, so that is um, when they arrive, um, so, so as in, for example, in, on the left, the, the two times you reflect your light are separated by 800 times a second. Now, if we make these slits closer in time, so they're only 500 femtosecond apart in time, well, you see the period of these oscillations is going to change. And it's going to get, uh, in this case, um, longer. And that's, that's a very like typical signature of uh, double slit diffraction. So it's really proof that we did, that our experiment is a diffraction in time. Um, and that's a very, um, you know, that's a very powerful result because um, it's, it's never been done before with, with visible light. I mean, here it's um, near infrared, but that's very close to visible light. Um, it's the same scale of speeds. And, um, you know, th this formalism that, formalism that we have, which is diffraction is like very, um, for, for physicists, it's very practical and very simple to approach. So it really allows, it gives us a very powerful tool with this uh, very fast mirror that modulates light to kind of start getting control over the, the spectrum, over the color of the light that we want out of our sample. Um, and now, um, if you look at slide 15, we had a, a little surprise, which was really nice when we did the experiment. We saw, um a lot of oscillations um now you know if you count them here on this graph you might think well it's actually not that many but if you do if you're an experimentalist in physics well you, you know how hard it can it can be to get data um and so we expected to just see a couple oscillations maybe a bit more but here you can generally see a lot and essentially um what dictates whether you can see these oscillations or not is how fast your material reacts to your um to your modulation. So how far, how fast you can turn your mirror on and off, how fast you can create these slits in time. And the, the, the real surprise here that it's much faster than we thought. Um, so, you know, it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a very happy finding. Um, and uh, the theory matches very well the experiment in our case. So, um, you know, it really confirms that our, uh, what, like the speed of our modulation is higher than previously accepted. So just to wrap up on site 16, um, I think if there's main things to take away from, from this paper, um, I mean, it's very rich in physics, but 
uh, you can say that we've created uh, a time-varying me, a mirror, uh, with uh, ingemtin oxide, um, which is essentially uh, what we call a temporal interface. So we can really switch on and off these slits in time, and we demonstrate double slit time diffraction for the first time with visible light, um, which is a great uh, achievement and very exciting for the future because we might want to do uh, more complex temporal modulations and other applications. And another great result is how how fast the this switching on of the laser of the of the um, material was and how it really unlocks a new regime of modulation that we want. Um, so yeah, I hope um, you've enjoyed this little uh, introduction to the paper. Um, hope it wasn't too sciencey and too um, obscure. You've got a QR code that's uh, linked to the um, to the um, to the paper on nature physics, and you can also check out uh, Ricardo's uh, group website, um, which is sapiensalab.com. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing this and for this um, yeah really beautiful presentation uh, that visualized. Um, this really well. I wanted to ask Emmanuel, did you want to add something before we go into questions or comment on something? Thanks. Thanks, Katarina. And uh, thanks, thanks, Roman, for um, the kind of overview of the, of the whole paper. Um, from, from my end, it's um, uh, maybe we can also leave it for, for questions. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm happy to, to know discuss questions as, as they come up it was uh, what, what from the theory side this 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 work was a lot more challenging than, than I was expecting in fact uh, and that really came out of the of the surprises that we realized were in, in stock for us in in terms of how fast these materials respond to um, to optical pumping so how fast we can actually modulate matter uh, and change the way it interacts with a with a probe, with probe, with light that we take, we used to probe it, uh, and uh, the, one of the main findings of the work really is that all the the assumptions that um, the community had been um, been uh, making in modeling these uh, theoretically uh, these materials, really we needed to to rethink them, and in fact, right now there's a lot of um, also theoretical effort in really coming to terms uh, with the, the fact that these materials respond um, unexpectedly fast. Um, that, that's what really, um, from, the theory, from a theory point of view, of course, the fact that these materials respond so fast, but then that, that opens the question, why do they do so? So that launches a new challenge for kind of theoretical um, uh, no, sorry, state physics and light matter interactions. Yeah, that would have been one of the questions why you think, um, you know, how, how, you know, the explanation, what, what is the leading theory of the explanation? Why, um, why that is basically. Yes. Yeah. From, a, I mean, what this is a, of course, a, a kind of, um, developing, as I was mentioning, it's a fast developing kind of, um, subject of, of discussion from the theory end, but what's what's emerging <clears throat> really is that there are what the, 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 what seems to be the case in when it comes to uh, modulating materials effectively is 
how many electrons are you actually uh, dealing with? When we, when we think of the density of electrons in, in a metal like gold, uh, it's extremely high. And that means that in order to uh, significant, to appreciably change the optical response of, uh, of gold, which is dominated by electrons at, at, at optical frequencies, um, you really need to do, a, to do a lot of work and the amount of energy that you need ultimately ends up melting the gold. <laughs> so um, the, that, that's kind of a no-go or no gold. To make a pun. Uh, but uh, these materials, they, they, the one way that some some groups call them are l l low electron density drew um, the materials. But the point here is that because they have such a low electron density, and uh, um, which is ultimately why they are transparent, as as, as Roman was saying, um, it's it's also it also means that we can modulate them very efficiently, and they, so that's why they they allow us to. Uh, to modulate them and to, to achieve all these actually uh, actual modulation effects all these ultra fast phase changes of, of light and therefore creating additional colors effectively um, out, of, out, of, out of light. Um, the, there, are, and there are still many mysteries in terms of how light couples to the vibrations in the, in the material and, and that's all like kind of in the making they are really developing a deeper understanding for what goes on and this this idea of course underpins other materials as well by the way that are have made the high the the the, the headlines recently graphene is one of them um one of the great promises for graphene and, and 2d materials is that because they have a much lower density of electrons if we pump them if we shine uh, the, uh, if we shine light on them we can actually modulate in time their optical, their their electromagnetic response very very efficiently. Yeah, thank you so much for for that answer. Um, I would, you know, I'll ask one more question, and then um, I know Oppenheimer and um, and Zoltan and Adit Aditya had for sure also questions. Um, so. What I know it's a kind of very broad question. I'll, I'll I'll start with like very broad question. So what do you think would be longer term the applications from the results um, that you see with this? You know, could we apply this to signal processing or maybe even neuromorphic computation? Or is that still, you know, too far out to to think about that? I will leave this one to Roman first, at least, because uh -huh. <laughs> I, I know that uh, you know, your, your group is, is interested in, in optical computing, so maybe you have a better shot. True. Um, well, you know, it's a tricky question because um, there's a lot of things you can uh, start from where from where we are at the moment. Um, so indeed, Emily mentioned computing and um you know a lot of think of people are thinking about doing some um <laughs> machine learning uh using these materials because um essentially machine learning right now is mostly done on uh gpus so uh graphical um units and a lot of people want or thinking about turning towards um more analog um machine learning which would require a lot less energy and power that 
because right now machine learning is essentially polluting a lot. Uh, it's very bad for the environment and it's also very expensive computationally. And what you need to do analog uh, machine learning is highly nonlinear system. And um, this, um, our, our, our medium that's changing very fast in time is a perfect example of these very, very nonlinear system. Um, so you can do, um, so a lot of people are considering uh, doing neuromorphic, what we call neuromorphic computing. So it's a form of machine learning that kind of reproduces the way neuron works in a, in a brain, uh, which you might be more familiar with. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of things you can do. And as you said, you can think about signal processing because um, now, now that you're starting to get control over color, well, you know, we mentioned um, structuring uh, in time and structuring in space. And now you can think, well, what if I do both? Um, <laughs> and, you know, you, you start to, you, you could think about creating very complex structures that can, what we like, what we could call like an ideal light multiplex. So that could really take any form of inputs and uh, give you any output that you want with light. So it would be very useful for communications um, and other applications that, you know, um, we can't really, we can only imagine, but, you know, maybe LIDARs and, um, you know, um, a lot of people use these kind of systems to do, um, how do you say, um, augmented reality or, um, you know, shape recognition, um, all sorts of applications that are more or less ambitious, uh, but that hopefully um, we'll get to see one day. Yeah, thank you. And I had one more question that I wanted to ask um, uh, before you um, you mentioned that um, the propulse um, broadens, like the spectrally broadened uh, with the frequency um, bandwidth that were away from the carrier frequency. What do you think? Does this contribute like to our understanding of um, spectral modulation and so forth? Like, if you could explain that maybe a little bit more. Thank you. Sure. Um, so here, um, this is really um, touching to the topic of diffraction. So um, to give you an example, um, if you look at uh, waves entering a harbor in the, you know, in a little like in the coast. Um, you can see uh, this kind of wave, which was arriving, uh, you know, with a um, really a, a flat wave front, and then it enters the harbor through like a fairly narrow entrance, and you see it propagating spherically, right? Um, and this is an example of diffraction. And what this means is, um, for for these waves entering the port, it means it broadens the range of angles at which the the wave propagates. And when you do this in time, it gives you, it broadens the amount of colors that are in your spectrum. So at the beginning, you can think of only one color, and then you go through this kind of slit, this kind of narrowing um, for the wave, and then you see more colors coming out, a wider range of colors. And this is actually an effect from the single slit. Um, so if you have only one slit, you see this, this broadening. So you see more colors appearing. And this in itself is a, is a proof of uh, is, is diffraction, but we wanted something 
uh, stronger, that could reveal more things about our system that was more convincing. And that's where the, the double slit experiment comes in. Because in the double slit experiment, you have the effects of both a single slit and um, the presence of two slits. So what happens is you see the broadening from the single slit effect. Uh, so you see all these frequencies appearing. Um, but from the double, what, what creates the oscillations is the double slit. So you kind of have, you can think of this kind of very uh, large of extent of newly generated frequencies. And then you see the up and downs that come from the fact that you have two instead of one. And that's why um, if you look at slide 14, you see if you change the distance between your two slits in time, so they're, they're different arrival times, you see different ups and downs than before. But the effect of the single slit is still the same. So you still see the same extent of uh, generated light, of generated colors. Um, so yes, it, it's, it's really this broadening and the oscillations are, are all diffraction effects here. And then it, it was also mentioned that basically the shape of the time slit is important. So how did you come then in the end with the shape you settled on and, and, um, what does it, you know, what does it mean <laughs> that you need, like, do you need a very specific shape? Do you, are there many types of shapes that would come to the same result? And, and what do you think it tells us? Um, maybe I'll leave this question to Emanuele. <laughs> um, it's a bit more theory. Yeah. So the, how sharp, how abrupt, how sharp uh, the slit is determines how many, uh, uh, how many oscillations you're, you're going to see. Uh, so imagine if the, if the, if it was very slow, if it was very kind of blurred, if you like, um, you wouldn't really uh, produce those oscillations in a limit where the rate at which this, this change in time occurs is very slow. We would technically, we would say adiabatic. It changes very slowly compared to the oscillations in time of the wave. Um, you would not see these fringes. So the, the visibility of these fringes only starts uh, becoming appreciable once the, the speed at which the material is changing starts becoming uh, comparable with the um, uh, the, 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 uh, the period of the wave, with the, the, the rate at which the waves are oscillating in time. So, and uh, the, you, as you say, like, what, is there a preferential way? Is there an optimal way? Well, each profile will give you a different response, but the, in, general, in general, but in the limit where this, these uh, slits become infinitely sharp, like you would have you know, a perfect hole, for example, um, they all converge to the optimal, if you like. The best that you can do is basically a situation where the 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 slit goes literally uh, closed, open, closed, like completely, hundred percent, with within basically uh, effective with, within a, a, an interval of time, which is much much faster than the temporal oscillations of the of the light waves. Yeah, interesting. And do you think that? your results kind of that models have to be I think you mentioned it a little bit but just to make clear 
for the audience, do mm -hmm. models need to be adjusted because, you know, you, you have kind of, you had kind of a discrepancy of much faster temporal dynamics. Do models have to be adjusted like theoretical models or, um, yeah, you mentioned that, you know, you, the, there's ongoing study about, um, Mm -hmm. materials and so on but but um is it that's more on the experimental side but is on the theoretical side something that needs to be adjusting <laughs> yeah so the the theory really kind of has the ball right now uh, in terms of um uh understanding uh why this 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 is what we see is we see we see so many of these oscillations because we the way that we initially model the system there's a there's a figure in the supplementary material of the paper where we use a you know an established uh, method a method that had been used for for other works um, however <clears throat> a method generally will hinge on some parameters we that that method had certain assumptions like the change in the in the optical response um, in, the, in the quantities that, that, that describe the optical response of the material changed um, linearly with the intensity of the pump uh, of the pump pulse and uh, unfortunately what we found is that that assumption was very uh, not very much um, it didn't hold it, any way that we tried to model uh, what we were observing based on that assumption failed and when it when that fails uh, of course you 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 know there's some disappointment about it from the theory point of view but there's also some excitement in that there is uh, there are more questions opened and in fact ultimately what ended up doing the job was really this diffraction model where we can basically ask the experiment this is this model that does this model describe the experiment and if so what is the um, what is the, the the rate at which the the, the, the this modulation has to has to happen in order for uh, this model to describe the to describe the system uh, to describe what we will be observed and you know tuning at one, one parameter the model precisely uh, reproduces the entire spectrum of harmonics that we that we observe so from from a, a theory point of view at that point it was hooray because um, you know, there's a lot of physics there that we, this model can reproduce um, with essentially one assumption, which is the speed at which this um, this uh, change in the in the indium tin oxide is happening. Um, so that's at the moment the best theory that we have, and uh, it's a theory which is uh, somewhat uh, simpler than than other theories that have been put forward before which still rely on their own assumptions, by the way. Um, but it turns out that those assumptions don't really hold. And so this theory kind of takes a step back, takes a, a, a bird's eye view on the physics at play, but it also allows us to make very powerful um, predictions um, to, uh, about, what's, about how fast uh, this modulation is happening. Yeah, thank you uh, for those answers. and. Um... Zoltan, did you have a question? Zoltan was a previous speaker here. He talked about 
different types of perceptions of time in children and adults and how it switches during development. So um, he was really looking forward to this talk. So uh, Zoltan, welcome back. And, and did you have a question or comment you wanted to add? Maybe he's away from the phone. I know it's very late for here, so. Um, and Hansen, I see your hand raised. I try to invite you. Uh, if it doesn't work, check in your profile. Yeah, there you are, Hansen. Welcome. How are you? Please ask your question. Oh, good. How are you, uh, Katarina? Uh, so uh, I came in really late. <laughs> so so. Um, Trying to uh, understand uh, like quickly um, the the uh, your work. Um, so uh, if I characterize it uh, uh, wrongly, to, please excuse me. The uh, uh, is it um, basically is it a good characterization or maybe oversimplified characterization? You shoot two pulses uh, of light in succession. Uh, basically, because uh, you can have uh, linear superposition of light, uh, and then uh, the with the time with a that's a bump bump uh, or whatever sh time uh, like uh, time domain shape you want it have it maybe uh, maybe a sh thin Gaussian or some other shape, um, and then you look at the uh, diffraction pattern of the uh, uh, of uh, uh, the film or crystal, uh, but then. Isn't it? Um, you can just um, uh, you know do a Fourier transform, um, and then superimpose the two pulses. Uh, for the thin pulses, basically the Fourier spectrum would be uh, uniform, um, and the thinner it is, the 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 the, the more flatter the uh, uh, the magnitude in the frequency domain would be, and then you. But there is a phase shift. Uh, I mean, in the frequency domain, because you have time shift, and then uh, just for it, uh, transform the the, the you, you know this phase shift, and then superimpose them together. Uh, but of course, I mean, uh, it depends on the material, the uh, crystal, uh, whether it's crystal or not. I'm not sure. The uh, you have Bragg diffraction, and so so a bit depending on the the response time of the crystal, uh, you add in that factor, uh, and then you get the uh, the the profile in the frequency domain would that be a kind of maybe simplified uh, characterization of the experiment? Uh, thank, thanks for the question. I mean, yeah, I can, I can, uh, I can try to um, to answer this question. So we have two models in the in the paper um, that we use. One of them is much more kind of quantitative, uh, and it's it's based on um, methods that people have used on other experiments as well. Um, and it turns out that the, the, the main features are there. What we could not reproduce, that qualitatively, that model reproduces the features that we see in the experiment. But quantitatively, quantitatively there's no way that the assumptions about the scaling of the change in, in, um, in the dielectric properties of the material that uh, the optical response to the material of, of indium tin oxide, um, there's no way that those assumptions could um, uh, allow us to quantitatively 
actually model, uh, reproduce the results that we were seeing in the experiment. So we took a step back and uh, yes, the, the model, a simple diffraction model is much simpler than what we were using before, uh, it turns out. However, uh, here is a much simpler model that actually quant not only qualitatively reproduces the data, but it quantitatively um, uh, reproduces it quantitatively as well. So the phenomenology is there and we know that the a, a more kind of, if you like, uh, sophisticated method, which still has you know, certain quantitative assumptions to it, um, does it reproduce the physics that we see. Now, what the, the sum of the two uh, models suggests is that we need to upgrade the models that we're using at the moment, the more sophisticated mo models that we're using at the moment, um, in order to be able to, 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 to reproduce these results quantitatively with something which is more ab initio, if you, if you come from, if you, if you, I'm sure you... Yeah, of course, first of course, yeah. Yes. yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. Ideally, we would like to have something that's more uh, for, for, from first principle, um, but we, we stopped there at that point because we didn't want to make just wild assumptions about the underlying uh, optical response to the pumping. Uh, we wanted to, and, and there was no, um, like, at the point where the, the results were, at the point where we were uh, with the project, um, we, you know, be, between, the, between the two methods, we could have something that was solid, uh, and we thought there was no, um, maybe that it's, 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 it's good also for the community to, to get this result out there and uh, have other people that are experts on non-equilibrium dynamics, which is really what is, what is happening there. Um, and now there are follow-up papers that are demonstrating that, uh, that there is a lot of rich non-equilibrium dynamics that goes into explaining uh, these phenomena. Um, but that would that would have kind of um, taken away the, the, the that would have kind of drifted away from the from the, the theme of the paper of the, the, the kind of project of the whole idea. So we, we we try to not go down that rabbit hole for within the, within this paper. Um, with that said, yeah, I agree with you. It's um, one of the two models is kind of more um, kind of simpler, but. And between the two, I think we have a, we, we have a solid idea of what's going on. I see. So uh, I suppose that when you say the uh, going down the rabbit hole, controlling down to depth, that would be uh, interaction of the light uh, photon with the uh, the uh, yeah. uh, atomic structure, the excitation, mm -hmm. the quantum excitation, mm -hmm. and then release uh, uh, the, the the optical pumping and all that. Um, so, but the uh, I understand that you're doing it uh, maybe from a more ph phenomenological uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, exactly. So, um, but the the thing is, um, uh, but why um, from the diffraction isn't it uh, isn't it uh, just uh, simple linear superposition? Uh, I mean, uh, why would uh, why what is this? What is special about uh, putting two pulses together? I mean, um, isn't that so? Uh, I, I, th you can I just... think um, if I can just um, step in, sorry. Um, so it's not two pulses. Um, what we are observing is a single pulse. Um, but, but you can so shape. That's, it's different. not just. No? Okay, go ahead. Sorry. 
Yeah, so we, we take a pulse and we shape it differently to have something that would look like two pulses. Um, I think what's interesting there is if you think uh, is that technically you could do the same experiment with a single photon. So you raise a very valid question, which is, you know, what does it mean? But, um, you know, if you did the, the same experiment with a single photon, so just one particle, then you would have something very similar to the um, experiment of the which slit did the photon go through, right? And um, in, the, in that quantum experiment, you know, you see the interference pattern coming again if you do that um, experiment with a single photon a lot of times. But if you start looking at which slit the, the photon went through, then the interference pattern disappears. Sure. And essentially, our experiment, amongst other things, shows that you can do the same thing in time. So if you did the same experiment with a photon, it could come out with a probability following that kind of like oscillation in, with, with its frequency. Um, so I think in, in, in these regards, in this aspect, it's kind of different than um, just mixing two light pulses together. Um, and so, it, yes, it's, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, but is your treatment classical or quantum? The, uh... So the treatment is classical. Um, the treatment is classical, um, but very luckily for us, um, like a classical Gaussian pulse behaves exactly in the same way than the probability function of a single photon. So if the, so, so that's why you can kind of predict your properties from the classical experiment. Yeah, um, but the, the, the thing is, I mean, it is, uh, if it is classical, it's optical uh, re domain. Um, the, I mean, but the, uh, well, okay, so, so mathematics is the same, right? So, so the two pulses and one, one pulse and shaped into um, the, uh, you have two bumps in the uh, time domain. Uh, it's the same, right? I mean, the the uh, just linear superposition, and uh, I mean, if if it is one photon, then experimental, it has a very stringent uh, uh, experimental um, restriction or requirement. Um, but if it is uh, uh, classical, then um, you know, the 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 um, I don't know. I don't know why. Why the what's the necessity for two pulse? I mean, you can just derive the uh, result from one pulse uh, if you're looking at the material response. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I must must miss something. Um, no, I think you're you're right. Um, as in, it's it's a lot easier to do the experiment with a lot of photons uh, in a classical regime rather than a quantum regime. Um, and um, at the moment, I wouldn't dream of doing that experiment with a single photon. <laughs> um, now, in terms of the mathematical aspects, um, yes, you can always say um, that you know a single pulse or two pulses, it's all the same formalism. Um, I think from a, from a practical point of view, it's quite important to us that we can just take one pulse that we want and get any other shape that we want out by doing Fourier transform. Um, I think it's, it's really cool. Um, Maybe Emmanuel, you have a, an opinion on, yeah. on this, maybe from a more vertical perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so, from a, yeah, I mean, I think we were we we were equally surprised 
uh, when we realized that we, we, we could just model it in that way. Um, and I said the, the the theoretical idea for this project the, the, there were there were a bunch of theoretical ideas that uh, emerged during the course of this project because the the original originally it, we were we were trying to model the experiment that was the that was the, the, the key um, but then we came up we, we, we came across some um, some work on this idea of time diffraction and it turns out that it's a, it's less trivial than, than we thought like not every um, wave equation will give you um, a uh, this effect that, that, that we observe. Um, for example, the in the, in the case where one sent, simply sends a wave normal to the to to, to this uh, shutter, uh, if you like, the um, when you say normal, you mean ninety degree uh, perpendicular. To so the... if you simply shine a plane wave um, against you know. Um, normally, uh, orthogonally against uh, against a shutter, different wave equations, for example, the Schrodinger equation and, and the and Maxwell's, Maxwell's equations, will give you uh, very different answers in terms of whether you see or not this effect of, um, uh, of transients. Basically, uh, what, what you see there is, is a transient, uh, and we were not even sure of whether we, we would see this. Um, we, you know, this would, would be an effect that was allowed for, for our scenario. And, and bear in mind, this doesn't contradict, this is all paper by, by um, a guy called Moschinsky in the 1950s, 52 or 58, uh, where he goes through different um, wave equations uh, and, and what he finds is that some of them, if the, essentially if the, if the time derivative has the same order as the, as the space derivative, you will see this effect. And if you, if they, um, sorry, you will not see the effect. If you, if you have the Schrodinger equation where you have first order derivatives in time and second order derivatives in space, then you will see the effect. But then if you start working with the resonance, like in our case, uh, you can see, you can see the effect. Um, so there's a kind of broader uh, umbrella on top of on top of these results, I, I I agree with you that the way that uh, ultimately a diffraction model that you would do in the spatial domain maps exactly to the to the time domain that came as a surprise for us too. Uh, we we were certainly not expecting to to reproduce all of that just with a simple uh, diffraction model. Um, but then from the in fact from a quantitative the the thing that the, the surprise there. Uh, from the theory point of view, is much more in the quantitative speed at which we can see these um, these uh, fringes. Like the, uh, we, the amount of fringes that we can see, and uh, therefore how fast this material this material is responding. Uh, I agree with you. There's no there's no like um, very advanced uh, theoretical physics in the in the um, in the in the work. Um, a lot of it is basically the main one of the main findings is basically the models that we are used to uh, don't work. Uh, we need to come up with better ones. And the other one is uh, here is a, a very simple model that somehow reproduces all the all the data. And it turns out that this because it's so because no, normally materials don't respond so fast. This effect these fringes had not been uh, observed before. Um, yeah, so we, that's that's the other. It, it, it took basically uh, working with these um, transparent conducting oxide to uh, to be able to see all these fringes.
I see. I guess it's the, yeah, I, I that's my kind of question. I, I suppose that's because the material, uh, the material property of the target that's more interesting, right? So the, uh, the how fast it responds, uh, the atomic structure. Um, Absolutely. The, yeah. And then uh, probably, and then you mentioned Schrodinger's equation. I would say, I mean, I don't think that the 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 wave, I mean, the the uh, electromagnetic wave uh, could be described by Schrodinger's equation because uh, because it, no, 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 absolutely, absolutely there's not. no mass, uh, right? Yeah. yeah, and and you probably if you want to use the quantum version of Maxwell equation, you should use the uh, quantum field equation, right? Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, so so. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if uh, if you consider. I mean, but that that's more in the realm of um, the photon material interaction than just the diffraction pattern, right? That's the yeah, absolutely uh, probably more absolutely. interesting. Yeah, 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 absolutely. This is yeah, the, the center is of all of this is like like matter interactions and and how fast we can actually modulate light uh, rather than um, you know the whole like mathematical. Uh, infrastructure there um, that was uh, not one of the key points of view points of view of the of, of the paper in fact one of the I think that the, the, the review reports were published with the paper and and one of them in fact praised the fact that the model was really simple and uh, and in fact and but still described the data so so accurately um, uh, yeah so I, I, I agree with you the, the the key novelty here is not in the in what the techniques that we use to model uh, the experiment. In fact, that was kind of, as I said before, it was taking a step back from a theoretical point of view. We didn't push further into whatever was going on in terms of non-equilibrium dynamics, but rather we took a step back and look at what we were seeing um, in terms of uh, um, uh, scattering. Gotcha. Scattering. Gotcha. So the uh, I am just curious. Uh, what's the original uh, the the one that um, your method replaced uh, the more sim simpler method that replaced, um, which is as you said more complicated. Um, the what was that treatment? Yes. Yeah, so in in that treatment, um, you basically assume that the plasma frequency varies linearly. Uh, so basically, the, essentially, the electron density um, uh, varies linearly with the intensity of the pump, and and the, it was clear that the time scales would not match. So the um, the speed at which the material would have to uh, respond in order to um, to for, for for that assumption. Um, the, the material could not be responding linearly to the intensity of the of the incoming pump, uh, and that if you, if you check the paper and also the other paper, the previous paper where we used that model, um, the there are you know the, the main difficult difficulty is I think really in that assumption that the response is linear with the intensity, uh, and in fact from some from another group now it turns out that not only it's not linear. But you cannot even describe it as a um, as a polynomial. Basically, the response they uh, uh, they say is very non-polynomial, which I still need to um, really discuss more with them. 
but uh, the point is that the, the conventional way that one describes nonlinear optics is that you expand their optical response in terms of uh, increasing nonlinear uh, contributions. Um, and typically, you take the first one or the first couple of, of terms. And so far, the community had been simply saying that the plasma frequency varies linearly with intensity. And that really turns out not to work uh, for, 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 this, for this system. And the, the, correct, the, the really correct way of going about this is to write down uh, a, an equation for the distribution of electrons and then consider um, electron uh, photo interactions, electron phono interactions, electron-electron um, interactions and, and, and quantify all of those. Um, and so, so it's, it's, a, it's a much more, um, it's, a much, it's a much deeper computational cool. exercise. Yeah, yeah. yeah I would so. So, so the original, uh, I, I suppose, I mean, I haven't looked at the paper. I, the, so uh, my guess is the, you said linear response. Is it um, basically treating it as a kind of a one bulk? Um, and without uh, looking at the kind of the, uh, I don't know if it's a crystal or anything, uh, the crystal structure and then scattering, um, mm -hmm. would that be correct in the, as a, yes, as a one yes. bulk? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the properties of the bulk material uh, are where we assume that we have a modulation. Gotcha. All right, great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. Yeah, thank you so much. And I wanted like to just you know i know we've been going on over an hour and um and almost 15 minutes but i just wanted to point out that this really fast switching i think it's really interesting especially for hopefully future applications for neuroimaging to record you know in real time <clears throat> brain imaging processing that's going on on a larger scale but yeah as we discussed before like devices like neuromorphic devices this will be really exciting to use that fast switching um and we we had the speaker speakers here on monday that are using um you know these uh, materials of nanowires to kind of um, have a, a, a nanomaterial for uh, neuromorphic devices so this would be a very different approach but would you say that there are specific uh, information processing that would be more suitable uh, using this optical approach uh, versus like nano uh, wire approach do you do you know about these and you know would you say that there are you know applications where this optical approach would be better um or yeah um it's a good question um i think nanowires are like a, a very great device a very interesting tool um but they usually belong more in the what you know what we were talking about earlier the spatial structuring um so you could definitely try and imagine a device that combines both spatial and temporal and I, especially because I know that people have made nanowires with NGM10 oxide, which is a material we've used. So there's a, definitely um, potential for this. Um, but it's true that at the, mom at the moment, the bridge hasn't really been done yet. Um, 
one of the yeah, that, uh, go ahead. Prefer. no i wanted to point out that this non-linear characteristic is in both you know and for both materials basically the important one to basically generate different types of memory and um that is more human like um the, so there in it, from this aspect it has that commonality but i wonder if there's aspects maybe you know if you do visual processing versus um let's say priming of information maybe that would be maybe you know to do point out to the system what memories would be more important and uh, they should retain longer or something if that would be maybe something that would done you know better in this uh, nanowire materials and then the optical processing maybe more for information that needs to be really fast and um, yeah but I don't know I'm, I'm not that's not my field so thanks um I mean I don't know what you think about it, but I think it, it's it's a very valid point. Um, um, but I think it's a, it's a question uh, that still has to be answered. Uh, I'm not sure I can. Um, yeah. So, our, some people, the people in our group, do some uh, optical computing, and I don't think they yet are thinking of neuromorphic computing. Uh, they probably are thinking about it, but I don't think I haven't seen anything uh, specifically on that yet. Um, what people say about optical computing is, is ultimately it's going to be the, the good thing is it should be easily parallelizable. Um, I wouldn't be able, I don't think I would be able to make a, a sound uh, uh, argument in favor of either uh, method towards specifically neuromorphic computing because it's really uh, kind of out of my um, out of my expertise. Um, all, all, all I can say is that there is a lot of interest for optical computing at the moment, so far largely based on uh, fixed structures. Um, uh, but they, they, here we're talking about standard kind of analog computing, like, uh, running running specific operations based on the on the structuring of of basically designing a photonic structure and, and building it. So basically doing calculations with light. Um, and in an analog fashion. Uh, from there to what's better for neuromorphic computing, I wouldn't be able to tell. Would there be a way of this metamaterials to kind of adapt to um, the information flow that comes in? Or, as you said, for now it's it's a very fixed material, or does it, you know, are there different types of materials that would be basically able to have kind of an ingrained um, information processing in the material itself. Yeah, um, so the, I think the next the thing that uh, the metamaterials world has in store in terms of optical computing is to, is to have basically a tunability, a dynamical tunability. That's really the next thing, meaning that based on, say, optical pumping or other ways of modulating, um, well, not really modulating, really just like retuning and, and adjusting the response of a photonic structure to to whatever operation we want to use it for. Um, I, you know, there are multiple groups that are focusing on, on this problem. In the context of the of this particular paper, 
this is kind of one step further in this in the sense that uh, and therefore a step further from uh, from applications right now uh, because we're kind of probing the limit to how fast we can we can we can change now these materials um, so it's not so evident yet um, whether this speed will be used in terms of the operation itself like we said in terms of frequency shifts and like you know varying doing computations based on frequency modulation uh, at opti near optical frequencies um, or whether it's simply going to be like in a switching kind of picture where we can adjust the optical response of these of these optical structures in order to vary their uh, response their their uh, functionality uh, on uh, picosecond or sub picosecond time scales yeah i think that the time resolution is the interesting part because this nanowire systems don't don't necessarily have that they they are able to mimic basically neuroplasticity so basically the the system adapts like memories um like the, the neuroplasticity in the brain adapts to the memories so that is possible there but i don't think you have this fast and time resolution that the system could tell um it, would that be something that the system could tell when which information came in at a higher resolution basically and and give that way a more closer to you know the the opticals or yeah the optical system of the brain and retina and so on i i think combining those two would be really exciting but i know that's probably a, a little bit in the future so <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe Roman probably knows more about this, but my, from, from my end right now, it seems a little far-fetched, <laughs> optimistic. <laughs> but it's, it's yeah, good to look forward it, with optimism. <laughs> it's, it's very much for the future. Um, it's true that light allows us to observe and resolve very short timescales. Um, that's the benefit of it. Um, I think on the other, uh, on the other hand, um, and people are working on it, but uh, there's more problems when it comes to memory. So you were talking about um, storing information. And I think if people now can can try and work towards uh, reconfigurable devices, so, you know, changing the task that you, that you learn to do, that is something that maybe you can see in the not too far future. Um, and people in parallel are working on, on optical memory, but this is also not, sorry, Emanuele. Um, do you like maybe you, you know more about um, optical memory? I'm, I'm not really an expert in the topic, but I think maybe in in a like in a bit more further away future, maybe you could bridge the two. But um, I think to um, to do things like like what is done with these um, nano wires, um, there's yeah, there's still quite a bit of uh, of work to do. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to really push it. Uh, uh... Yeah, more <laughs> into I probably need to learn more about it before, to, 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 to make a statement. Yeah, and if you have time for one more question, uh, Lara is asking if this experiment has uh, would have maybe also similar results in sound waves. Um, 
Mm -hmm. yeah, or, or you know in other basically mm -hmm. waves yeah so <laughs> in the, the, this whole um uh, field of kind of time varying media um really has found ha, had a lot of success really in the in the in the acoustics uh, community and mechanical waves community uh, like water waves for example and the idea of course is, as Roman uh, explained very clear at the beginning um, is that uh, these waves oscillate at much lower frequencies and that's of course a double-edged sword because on the one hand yes a lot of you know a lot of uh, ideas you know often more kind of um, even more fancy or sophisticated uh, than what this experiment uh, specifically showed can be implemented on the other hand it's less. It's a. It's a lower target in the sense that um, it's less striking. Uh, that um, you know, modulate. What what the, um, this project showed is that uh, materials can respond extremely fast, much faster than we thought before. Uh, so we're talking about about several uh, orders of magnitude, um, nearly ten orders of magnitude faster than sound waves. Um, so yeah, so the, the acoustics community is very active in the context of temporary media. Um, in fact, uh, if you if you uh, Google uh, time reversal imaging, um, well, you, most of the papers that you'll find will be about acoustics, uh, ultrasound, and, and the reason is that uh, we can digitally convert and, and, and manipulate sound uh, in temporally at speeds which are much even even with digital. Um, you know, equipment much faster than 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 the frequency of the sound itself. So um, that there is a lot of, um, of course, no potential for implementation, and also very fundamental studies on wave physics, which which is kind of um, my my main uh, topic of research. But the yeah, so there are certainly opportunities. They are they can be potentially less striking in the sense that uh, it's less surprising how we we know pretty well how fast we can um, play these tricks with sound, and because we can always use light, for example, to, which is much faster to to modulate an acoustic system. In fact, um, I'm aware of experiments where they they are using lasers to um, to modulate. Uh, very fast uh, uh, acoustic cavities with uh, with ultrasound to in order to 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 engineer um, pretty extreme time bearing effects. Yeah, thank you for for that answer. And yeah, I am sorry that we went over the time, but uh, this was such an interesting discussion, and it's such an interesting field so uh thank you so much for coming and sharing your knowledge and um your time with us <laughs> um thank you so much. yeah oh, i hope you. you enjoyed it and i yeah good luck i know you don't need it but anyways for your future research and we are really curious to uh follow your you know next publication then what comes out of your lab so yeah thank you so much thank you and uh, thank you very much thank you. take care real pleasure <laughs> wonderful and thanks everyone for coming asking questions sending questions um yeah and if you like discussions like this uh follow us we'll have 
On June 5th at 7 p.m. EST, Dr. Fukasawa coming um, to present from Japan, and he will talk a lot about his latest paper, Electrical Potentials in the fun in Fungi System, and uh, that he could record after a rainfall event. Uh, it's really interesting how these uh, fungi systems communicate with each other through electrical signals. There's a lot research coming out out of fungi and out of plants so uh, I think this will be really interesting and uh, yeah so thank you everyone thank you Manuel thank you Romain it was a pleasure meeting you and I'll close the room in three two one bye everyone thank you thank you